you guys would stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading Romans chapter 14 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Or uh, we have uh, Bibles in uh, many of the pews that you can grab, or it'll be on the screen as well. Whichever works for you, but we would love for you to follow along as I read Romans chapter 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Uh, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For we live for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For th to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the living and of the dead, or of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You can have a seat. You know, in my uh, early 20s, particularly, I felt quite strongly that I ought not to drink alcohol. 
And now the college that I attended had a code of conduct, Bible college, it had a code of conduct, which we signed that said that we would not, among other things, drink alcohol while we were a student. And so, of course, I had no qualms with that because I was already of the mind that I ought not to do that. And so, for that reason, I did not drink. But even when I graduated, it was no longer submitted to that authority, to that code of conduct that I had signed, to the integrity of my commitment to the college. I was still under the conviction that I ought not to drink. I was under the conviction that it was something that I should give up for Christ, that it wouldn't be honoring to Jesus for me to do so. In fact, I felt quite strongly that not only myself, but that no Christian should drink alcohol. I understood that technically it's true that the Bible did forbid, did not forbid us from alcohol, that it only forbid the Christian from drunkenness. And yet, the logic in my brain at that time was, if drinking too much is unrighteous, then drinking not at all must make me more righteous, right? Are we not to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God? Is it not worthwhile to sacrifice this trivial thing? I, I could sacrifice craft beer, for instance, for the sake of my Savior. Why can't you? You must not love him as much as I love him. While I wouldn't have said it this way, I very much thought that I was a better Christian because of my abstinence from alcohol. If I was under the conviction that it was better for me to not drink, then at least in my mind, it must be more honoring to God for others to do the same. If God had convicted me that I ought not to drink, then it must be that he is convicting everyone of this and they just aren't listening as well as I am. They're not willing to obey as well as I am. Romans 12 through chapters 12 through 15, it's concerned with how the gospel shapes our behavior. We've talked about this the last couple of weeks. And two categories particularly have risen to the surface as we've discussed it. Uh, this idea, uh, when they were clear in last week's sermon, if you were here, this idea that we ought to love one another and this idea that we ought to live for God. We ought to live in the presence or the face of God, right? To be a living sacrifice to him in all that we do. Now, the Bible has a certain set of things that it commands of us, right? Do these things. And the Bible has a certain set of things that it commands for us not to do. Do not do these things. But what about, what about the things that don't necessarily fall into either of these camps? What about that, that space in the middle, if you will? What are we to do with that? As Christians, what would God have us to do 
Would he have us to put them in this camp? Or would he have us to push those things into this camp? Or has he just left it up to us to decide? And, and maybe more importantly, maybe, maybe more, uh, I shouldn't say more importantly, maybe more um, critically to uh, the, our life together as believers in the church, what do we do about other Christians who handle the matters in this middle area, if I can call it that, in a different way than we do? In other words, what I think is happening in chapter 14 is that we've come to a place in which our love for one another and our life for God as living sacrifices can bump into one another, if you will. Paul foresees this issue as he's writing to the Romans, and he wants to give them some instructions. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to talk about this, really the overarching command of Romans chapter 14, verse 1 through 15, 13, is this, welcome believers. If, if they're a Christian and you're a Christian, you ought to welcome them. And that's really the thrust of this entire section, and we're going to talk about it for, for two weeks because you don't want me to preach on a, a chapter and a half of the Bible all at once, right? So we'll do it in two parts. But verse one of our passage today starts with this, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. That's Paul's command. And we'll see this repeated and expanded to all Christians at kind of the climax of this section in chapter 15, verse 7, where Paul says, therefore, welcome one another. He commands all believers to do this. Now, what does it mean, welcome one another? Well, we'll get a better picture of it as we go along, but, but just in general, the picture I want in your mind uh, from this word welcome is is the idea of accepting someone into your own home, inviting them into your own home and into your kind of relational circle. That is a welcoming. So what's unique about this first part that we're going to talk about today? I think what's unique is what Paul tells them not to do here. Do you see this in the first verse? It says, do not quarrel over opinions. Welcome the one who's weak in faith. Do not quarrel over opinions. Apparently for the Romans, their handling of these opinion issues, uh, they're doing it in a way that must be inhibiting their reception of one another. Particularly when one person or group is weak in faith and another is strong. What we know both from what we've read in the book of Romans and what we'll see later on here at the end uh, of this section, the first part of chapter 15, is that there are Jewish Christians, Christians who came to faith out of Jewish culture, and then there are Gentile Christians, Christians who came to faith out of a Gentile culture. And there are certain things that Jews would not do in honor of God. And now that they've come to Christ, they have the freedom to do these things that as Jews they wouldn't do. But 
as you know, when you grow up in a particular way, kind of the heaviness of those things that were restricted from you, like for me, drinking, I grew up in a Christian culture that was very rigid about that. Even though I was free to do them, it still felt like I ought not to, to me. I still had the conviction that I ought not to. And so these Jewish Christians still had the conviction that there were certain things they ought not to do, even though their faith in Christ freed them to do it. So I want to answer two questions this morning as we look at this passage. I want to get a better understanding of who is strong or weak. Who's strong or weak? What does that mean? And what are these issues? And then what should we do about it? I want to begin to answer the question, what should we do about it? And that's going to kind of carry us over into next week. And we'll talk a little bit more next week about what we should do about it as well. But, but there's going to be a, particularly a command to the strong here. So who's strong or weak? Well, Paul gives us three examples in our text of opinion issues and what the weak in faith do as opposed to those who are strong in faith. In verses 2 and 6, we see that there's this issue of eating meat. We got the weak brothers who don't eat meat, they just eat vegetables. And the strong brothers who eat meat. Most likely, culturally, what's going on here is the, uh, some meat was sacrificed to idols, and within Jew the Jewish faith, it was very important that you wouldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols, even if you weren't the one sacrificing said meat. And so there were some Jewish Christians who said, you know what, we just don't want to accidentally do the wrong thing, and so we're just going to, we're not going to eat meat at all. We're going to eat us some veggies. More power to you. In verses 5 and 6, we see there's this issue about observing days. Weak brothers observed days, strong ones did not. We're not entirely sure which days it's referring to. It could have been the Jewish festival days. It could have been the Sabbath. It could have been fast days that they had. Whatever the case, the weak brothers observed these particular days in higher honor. And the strong ones observed all days equally. And the final example it gives only briefly in verse 23 is the idea of drinking wine. Weak brothers did not drink and strong ones did. So, so here's what we know. Weak and strong brothers are both true believers. I want you to see this in the text. God has welcomed them both, verse 3. And they're both considered brothers. That term is used for Christians in verse 10. And so both the weak and the strong brothers are true believers. This is not an issue of un unbelievers in the church versus believers in the church. Second, this is not a matter of sin versus obedience. Look at the text. They are both, Paul says, honoring the Lord, verse 6. If one was sinning and the other one was not sinning, Paul would not say that they're both honoring the Lord. He would say the one who's sinning is not honoring the Lord. He's very clear at times about sin, am I right? We've been reading the book of Romans, like he's pretty clear on sin. And verse 23 says that what we do without faith is sin. It does not say what we do in the weakness of faith is sin. And so, we know 
that this is not a matter of sin versus obedience. We know that these opinion issues are not matters that are expressed in God's law. Paul's been clear about sin. He's been clear even in the few verses before this passage about sin, right? He talks about how we are to love our neighbors by obeying commandments 6 through 10 of the Ten Commandments. Paul has no problem if God commands it to say quite directly, you should do this. You should not do this. He has no qualms with that. So then who is the weaker brother? Here's the definition I want, I want to propose to you. The weaker brother is one who has a reservation about something God has not commanded. The weaker brother is one who has a reservation about something that God has not commanded. So for me, in my early 20s, I had a reservation about drinking alcohol at all, even though God had not commanded that. Verse 6 here, friends, is so critically important to this passage and to understanding it. The weak brother decided it, was, it would be more honoring to God to not eat meat or to not observe days all the same. That does not mean that they are actually honoring God more than the stronger brother. The stronger brother also honors God in enjoying the freedom that he has or she has in Christ, right? So these two Christians, their actions can be the exact opposite of one another, and yet they both are producing the same result, honoring the Lord. Man, we, we, I'm telling you, I'm just a person that likes things pretty clean cut. Like, just, just, this is what it is, this is what it is, isn't it? like black and white. And this whole, this whole thing is just like, dang it. Like, even the fact that I just said, dang it, <laughs> may be a conscious issue for you, right? <laughs> right? Am I right? I didn't even mean to do that, but as I said it, I realized, wait a second. The weaker brother is well-intentioned, but is holding to a way of living that is not commanded of all Christians, while it is also not condemned. But it seems best to them because, and this is the key part, guys, because they believe it honors and pleases God. Listen, as your pastor... I would much rather you, uh, in a situation where you aren't aware of what God's word says, accidentally do something that God's word doesn't command because you believe it's most honoring to God. Because it's easy to go, look, look, here's what scripture says. It's easy to do that. It's really hard to have someone's heart actually want to honor God no matter what. So one name that this idea has been given in Christian history is the term Christian liberty. And today when we talk about liberty, we talk about freedom, 
What we generally think about is not liberty as it's being defined here, but license. And what I mean by that is this. This idea of freedom as a license is, to, is that we can do whatever we want, when we want, because essentially we see ourselves as our own master. Or even in our own master in that area. And so we can look at uh, what's happening here and we can say, uh, this kind of thinking leaks into the church in, in this way. Uh, there are certain things that God commands me to do or he commands me not to do. And in those areas, God is my master. But in these areas where he's not clear or explicit, I get to be my own master. And what Paul is saying is, no, you don't. The Lord is your master in both arenas. Just because it hasn't been directly commanded does not mean that you don't have to submit those things to God. Freedom as freedom of liberty, rightly defined, means that we have freedom in these opinion issues or in these matters of indifference, in these matters of conscience, to honor God in different ways. It's a big difference there. Two Christians could do two different things and both be honoring to God, but it is not freedom for areas of our life to not be under the lordship of Christ. I think Pastor Mark Dever summarizes this pretty well. He says something like this. He says, issues of conscience, these issues, they can't make a wrong thing right, but they can make a right thing wrong. They can't make a wrong thing right if God says it's wrong, then it's wrong. You can't just be like, oh, well, gosh, I, I, I'm not really convicted of that, so I, I, it's not wrong for me. No, that, this, is, this isn't how that, that works. We don't have the freedom to decide that the Bible, what the Bible says is wrong is actually right for us. But if there is something the Bible does not command and a Christian is convicted that they ought not to do it and they do it still, then it is sin for them. Are you with me on this? Am I making sense? Okay. It's sin not necessarily in the action of it, but in the intention of it. What are some of these things today? Well, you know, honestly, as a pastor, I've seen uh, just a, a million of these things. I've probably made mistakes on a million of these things myself as well. But I'll share a few. Uh, parents, it is your responsibility... Your kids are your responsibility. Raising, raising your kids, discipling your kids, this is kind of a, a soapbox for me right now, sorry. Raising your kids, discipling your kids, that's your responsibility. Educating your kids, that's your responsibility. However, whether you do that through public school education or private school education or homeschool education, that is a conscious issue. That is a matter of indifference. That is an opinion and you do what is honoring to God for your family. You need to decide that. The Bible commands us to be good stewards. That's true. And I'd love for all of you to have a monthly budget. But that's an opinion issue. And you need to do what's honoring to God. And if you're convicted that you ought to account for what God has given you each month in that way, then you should do that. If you're not convicted, if you're convicted that, you know, do that a different way, 
whether, uh, what movies you watch, what music you listen to, whether you drink or you smoke, or what kind of clothes you wear, what kind of clothes you wear to church, these are all issues of conscience. Whether you choose to wear a mask or get vaccinated, that's an issue of conscience. And you should do what you believe is honoring to God. Now, at some point, they can cease to be, right? There are some, maybe, things that I could wear that might cease to be an issue of conscience. There are some movies that I could watch that move out of an issue of conscience and into an issue of God's law, right? But just because someone might become addicted to wine just because someone might watch a movie they ought not to watch doesn't mean that we must not drink at all, doesn't mean that we must not watch any movies at all, etc. Before we go further, I want to make one little note here. I want you to understand that the weak Christian in this passage also is not what we would call a legalist, okay? And I think this is an important distinction for us to make. Someone who takes a more rigid path in their faith isn't necessarily a legalist. It's not accurately defined. A legalist is someone who believes that their behavior in some measure justifies them before God. That is to say, something they do contributes to their right standing before God. And we know from Romans 3 that we are only justified by faith in Jesus, not by what we do, but solely by what Christ has done for us. So Paul's approach to legalists, and you can see this in his letter to the Galatians, and you can see this in Philippians as well. In those letters, Paul addresses those who are teaching the church, particularly that they must be circumcised to be right before God. Paul has no patience with them whatsoever. Because the truth of the gospel, the core of the gospel is at stake. And so he speaks in incredibly strong terms to them. I share some of those things, but maybe a conscious issue for, you to use, for me to use those words that Paul uses. But notice, with these weaker brothers, with these weak brothers, Paul is quite gentle in this passage. You see that? He's very gentle with them. In fact, he doesn't even command the weaker brothers to eat meat or stop observing days, even though he says that he's quite certain you can. And yet he doesn't command them to do it. He's happy for them to follow their conscience, where their conscience directs them on these matters of indifference. However, if a weaker brother makes one of these issues, a standard for Christians generally. For example, if they said, you must abstain from alcohol to be a member of this church. Or to be a pastor or an elder, you should not watch movies or whatever. It may be true that some members are better off to not drink alcohol or some pastors are better off to not watch movies or shows or, or what have you. However, because it is not a standard in the Bible, the one insisting on that behavior is no longer a weaker brother. By definition, they are now a legalist and they ought to be confronted because the gospel is at stake. 
because you're saying this is necessary to be a Christian as well. You're saying it's Jesus plus this thing. And that is not what the Bible says. And so we ought to be diligent to refute them. We have to be diligent to correct them where they may be confused. Some people are just confused. And when we find that they're actually know full well what they're saying and yet they continue to say it, they are false teachers and they ought to be removed. So what should we do about it? The overall command is that we ought to welcome these believers, welcome them. To put it another way, we are not to take these differences on non-essential matters as a means to consider uh, that others are outside of God's family and, or, or even outside of our own particular local church. And we're going to see two negative commands that, that kind of keep us from welcoming believers, right? He says, don't judge another. And he also tells them to not cause another to stumble. You see, in the first half of our passage, Paul gives these dual warnings. First, primarily to the strong, he says, do not despise. This is kind of like this attitude of disdain, disdainful, condescending judgment. Oh, those weak fools, they don't get it. They're all hung up on these things that actually aren't that big of a deal. That kind of an attitude. And then secondly, he says primarily to the weak, do not pass judgment. This kind of attitude is like, oh, oh, I thought you were a Christian kind of mindset. We, we are the truly righteous ones who really love Jesus, like me in my drinking illustration at the beginning. Both of these can be summed up in this one command, do not judge in attitude or action. Now, now, it's important to understand the context here. Paul is not saying, he's not making a blanket statement that Christians should never judge one another at all in any way. In 1 Corinthians 5.12, he says quite directly, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? My point here isn't to explain the ins and outs of judging. But just to say that we can rip this command out of context this command to not pass judgment. And we can make it say things that Paul didn't intend it to say. We are talking about judging or criticizing according to these opinion issues. All right? We can't take a conscience issue and say, you're a Christian or you're not a Christian or you're good and God-honoring in your faith and you're not. We're not supposed to do that. Paul's reasoning is plain. Here's why. I'm not your master. I'm not your master. You are not another person in here's master. You are not even your own master. Jesus is your master, period. We are all servants of Christ and we are to obey him above all others. And in verse 10, we will all stand before God's judgment for what we do with these things. You will not merely stand before God's judgment and he'll go, okay, did you do all the things that I said not to do? Did you avoid all the things that, that I said don't, don't do these things? No, you will also stand before God in judgment for whether you honored him with the things in the middle. There's 
no level of morality that I ought to challenge you to, no checklist that I can come up with that, that you, you know, have to follow. I, mean, I think sometimes in faith, that's what we want. Just, just tell me what the checklist is, Cody, and I'll just check those things and then let me do whatever I want with everything else. And that's not how faith in Christ works. God intends to bring everything in your life, all of your heart, all of who you are in submission to him. For your good. That's what I want you to get. This is for your good, the Bible says. Because if God has created everything, and he knows how everything ought to work, including you, and he knows what's best for you, and he's a good God that would send his son to redeem you for all the mistakes you made in that, then bringing everything into submission to him is actually the best possible thing for you. even if in the moment it don't feel so good, right? Hmm. Here's the deal. Verse four, the Lord, the Lord is able to make you stand. Your Lord, you don't, you don't merely stand before him in judgment, but he, he is such a good God, he will make you able to stand. It's Christ who justifies. It's Christ who through the Spirit sanctifies you. It's Christ who presents you to himself pure and spotless, as Ephesians 5 says. So this idea of conscience at first glance, it can feel a little bit willy-nilly. And Paul's already told us that even Gentiles, without the law, uh, their consciences work on them and, they, and it reveals the God, God's law generally to them. And, and even though sin corrupts it, this, this idea of conscience, it causes them to do more good than they ought to have ha- done otherwise. We, we get this idea that, that if we don't legislate every single little thing beyond even what God has legislated, that people are just going to shipwreck themselves as if the Holy Spirit is incapable of convicting or keeping us from sin or leading us rightly towards Christ, as if God is not sovereign and he's incapable of directing our steps, and the reality, friends, is quite the opposite. If, as a Christian, if in any given situation we simply stop and ask the question, what would be honoring to God here? We'd be better off in our faith. We'd be better off in our life every single time. Yeah, maybe sometimes you get it wrong. Maybe sometimes you ask yourself that question and, and, and you get it wrong. But, but here's the deal. You'll learn very quickly if that's your desire. And you'll realize quite quickly, God will show you that wasn't it. Do this instead next time. But if your heart is not to honor God, you'll never be able to learn that lesson. Sure, sometimes we'll make mistakes because we don't fully understand God's word. But like I said, it's much easier to teach a person what God's word says than it is to change their heart to want to honor him. And the other element of this, don't pass judgment, but also in verses 13 through 23, it tells us to not cause another to stumble. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another. 
any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. We've seen this word stumbling block before a couple of months ago when we were reading or when we were preaching through Rome, uh, Matthew 18, right? Same word here for stumbling block, this translated stumbling block. It refers to a trap or a trip that causes a spiritual downfall. And Paul's point comes into focus as we understand this sort of uh, word sandwich that he's making in this section. On the very outside in verses 13 and verse 21, we see the same concept repeated. Never put a stumbling block in 13. Don't do anything that causes your brother to stumble in verse 21. And then just inside of that in 14a and 20b, it says nothing is unclean. And then he repeats, everything is clean. You see this in the text, and then a next layer in, verses 14b and 20a, do not eat in such a way as to harm a brother. He's not saying don't eat. He's saying don't eat in such a way that it would harm a brother. And then in verse 20a, it says don't trust or don't destroy the work of God. So he's repeating the same thing, and all this is kind of moving us to the middle. And Paul gives this directive not to cause a stumbling block, affirming, then he affirms that these issues, they're not sinful to do or to not to do. It's about how we're doing them. And he insists that the strong partake in them in a way that would not cause the weak to stumble. That they would not do it in a way that would encourage or even insist the weak to partake in them when the weak are convicted to not do them. That would create a stumbling block. And you could imagine if you were with me in my early 20s and I felt very, very uh, strongly that I ought not to drink, right? And you came and you were like, oh, Cody, come on, man. Let's just, you're 21. Let's, let's go get a drink. It's just, it's, you're not going to get drunk. Let's just, just drink one beer, right? No big deal. And let's say eventually, uh, even though you knew that I was convicted that I ought to, uh, eventually, because of your pressuring, I was like, you know, oh gosh, you know, fine, I'll just, I'll go and have a drink. And now in the action, it would not be sin, but in my heart, in my heart, it would be, because God had convicted me that I ought not to do it. And now you, being strong in faith, have caused me, weak in faith, to do that which I ought not to have done. And the reason here is found in the middle, verses 16 through 19. It says, verse 16, as strong brothers, if we approach this incorrectly, we will cause the good freedom we have in Christ to seem like evil to others. To seem like evil to others. Verse 17, when God's kingdom is not primarily even about, or God's kingdom then is not primarily even about doing or not doing said things. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the spirit. And so if my doing or not doing is leading me into greater righteousness and peace and joy in the spirit, that's fine. That's fine. That's good. And if we serve Christ in this way, seeking to honor him in everything, we will be pleasing to God and generally approved by men. So then we have these two objectives to balance in our freedom in Christ. Peace and unity in the church and what builds others up 
spiritually. We're going to look at this more closely next week. And we're going to look more closely, particularly at how this can only happen because of Jesus. And it can only happen in a community where Jesus is at the center. But for now, what I want to say is this. If the weak brother says, I don't, I don't think that that would be honoring for God for me to do. The strong brother ought not to criticize them or rub their freedom in their face or strong arm them into doing what the other believes would be dishonoring. If someone is doing something that's clearly not biblical, then we should confront them uh, with that. If we think that they're missing out on freedom that they could have, then absolutely have a conversation with that person, discuss that issue, try to, to unpack the scripture more fully to them so that they would understand That's different than quarreling. It doesn't press the issue to a degree that breaks unity. Its its heart is for what would build up the weaker brother, not some need to justify or defend my own behavior, right? I'll use this just drinking illustration as an example in my life. I had a close friend who is the same age as me who did not share my conviction. And though I at times criticized him, for drinking, and frankly, if I'm, uh, you know, you know me. So imagine me, 15 or 17 years younger, with less filter and less maturity. All right. You can. It is probably not hard for you to imagine me being a little harsh with my friend. He didn't take it personally, though, and but kindly pointed me back to God's word. Well. I shouldn't say he didn't take it personally. He may have, and yet he forgave me for it and continued to point me back to God's word, continued to love me, did not break friendship with me. When I went too far, he didn't feel the need to get the final word in on me. And over time, the Holy Spirit showed me the freedom that I had in Christ. I mean, I was like 27 by that time. It took a while, but God got me there. It's hard. It's hard once you have in your head that a thing is bad to break free from that mindset and have a clear conscience about it. And so we ought to have patience. We who are strong must remember to have patience with the weak. Because if we rush that, we risk encouraging someone to do something that would be for them sin. Paul's point, I think, comes to a clear conclusion in verses 22 through 23. It's truly a blessing when you can lay your head on the pillow at night and have no reason to pass judgment on yourself for what you did that day. And you have no doubts that what you did was good or that you did not do anything in which you may have a doubt about. For whatever you do that is not driven by your faith in Christ is sin. I'll tell you one last story, and then I, then I want to close this, close this up, move us into communion. Um, when, when Ryder was not quite two years old, I remember this very distinctly this day, Amanda was really pregnant with Josie, and I don't know what she was doing. She was somewhere else, and I was on Ryder duty by myself, right? Me and Ryder in a living room, we're having fun. Ryder's playing with his toys right here. And I um, was playing my PlayStation 2. I had, uh, let's see, MLB 2005. That's what I was playing. 
and I had a sweet dynasty with the Royals. I mean, I'd won the World Series like three times in a row. I was killing it. And I don't know how long I had played that day or how often I had played over the last couple of weeks before that, but, but let's, just, let's just say it was a lot. And I remember sitting there uh, playing, and I was about ready to start another season or another game or whatever, and I looked over at Ryder, and he was having a good old time. He was playing right there, you know, just a few feet away from me. But, I, I, but suddenly I had this conviction that I had spent so much time playing this video game that frankly, by that time, was out of date anyways, right? I mean, it was, it was like seven years old. I don't know. And my son, by the time he was as old as his video game, how many hours would I have missed with him? Because I was playing the video game instead of playing with him. And I knew in that moment what I needed to do. And I turned it off because I knew if I didn't do it right then, I'd back out of it, right? I turned it off and I boxed it up and I got rid of it, all of it. Now, if I would have gone from there and I would have said, well, God convicted me, a pastor, a Christian father, that I should not play video games. And so I'm going to start a coalition for Christian parents against pastors playing video games. No. It was not a universal rule. And yet, it was very much something that I needed to be obedient to in that moment. Christian, what I want you to know is this, there may be something that is not clearly commanded in scripture, but you know right now, and you have known for some time, that it is not honoring to God for you to do that. And you need to change. You need to bring that thing into submission to Christ. Do not wait another moment. Do not make another excuse. Do it. But church, I want you also to understand that we will all stand before the Lord one day ourselves and he will judge us. And we will give an account of ourselves to him. Not only in whether or not we have honored God in these issues, but also if our interactions with one another in these things were honoring to him as well. Do not, for the sake of something that is not commanded in Scripture, break that which is commanded in Scripture. Do not, for the sake of something that is an issue of conscience, that is an opinion, do not refuse to love one another. And the reality is that we, have, we all fail at some point in this. We've all broken our consciences, our own consciences. We've all bound someone else's conscience wrongly. But friends, praise be to God that the Lord is able to make us stand on that day. Not according to what we did, what we did not do, 
but according to what he freely did for us in perfectly obeying every command and being willing to die for all the ways that we've dishonored him. 1 John 3.20, it says, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. He welcomes us despite ourselves. And when on that day, his hands and his feet were nailed to the cross, for those who have faith in him, he nailed the door open, if you will, to us, that we might be accepted. Who are we then to not welcome those who Christ has welcomed? Let's pray.